Hey, good morning, Sycamore View family and friends. Great to see a number of you with us today. Thank you for all of you joining us online. Thank you for being active participants, and we're grateful for all the ways we get to stay connected, especially over the last year and a half. Uh, my mom is here with us today. It's been over a year since my mom has been able to visit Memphis. It was just over a year ago my mom and I co-preached on this stage, and then we released a book, and I think two days before the book was released, my mom received a call that her cancer was back, so it's been a year-long battle in this past week. She had her scans, which showed no cancer in her body, so we're, we're so thrilled to have my mom and my dad. Um, my mom and my dad were here for a couple of days. My dad flew back yesterday to preach this morning, and mom... Uh, wanted to stay a little extra to be a, a good grandma this weekend. So, Mom, we, we love you and so glad you're here today. Uh, I've let you know, church, the last couple of weeks that our uh, leaders here, the elders and the ministers, we have been on a 21-day journey, just a 21-day, uh, whatever you want to call it, like a reset, a recalibration. It's a 21-day discipleship dive where for 21 days we have, uh, have engaged and committed to some pretty intense spiritual disciplines to both grow our love for Jesus and our awareness of God's love for us. 21 days of just reading the gospel every week, times of silence, repentance, and gratitude, and fasting. And today is the last day of that journey. Uh, and, and we realize as leaders that uh, leaders in a church, we can try to lead from principles that we learn about in leadership conferences or leadership books, but you don't, you don't just need leaders who are leading from leadership principles, but people who are leading from the presence of Jesus. And that's, what, that's where our hearts want to be committed as we continue to, to lead this church. So I encourage you over the next few days, if you're a member of this church, you should know who your personal elder is and just reach out to a leader and ask them what this 21-day journey has been like for them. Give them a chance to articulate some of the disciplines we've been engaged in and how we have encountered God uh, in this season. So let me begin with this question, all right? What does it mean for a Memphian to be a Memphian? What does it mean for somebody who lives in Memphis? Like, what does it mean for a Memphian to be a Memphian? Uh, is it because you spell woman with five letters, W-O-M-A-N, but you spell man with four letters, M-A-N-E, main? I mean, that's part of what it means for a Memphian to be a Memphian, or you're okay with driving on a street in Memphis for 10 miles and it changes names three times, right? Have you ever had someone come from out of town and they're like, so I can take Walnut Grove and it'll get me all the way downtown, and your response is kinda, but you need to be aware that sometimes names change. For Memphian to be a Memphian, I don't know if you have to be born and raised in Memphis or is it possible to be a transplant, yet you take on all, the, all, all things Memphis. It's about food and culture and music. The other day I had a lunch appointment in Soulfish and I walked in and Penny Hardaway was there who's like a Memphian of Memphians, right? And as I walked in, I was like, Josh, act like you've been in a situation like this before. Don't freak out. Don't be a Betty Litton who's going to go up and just give him a hug or ask for his phone number, or give him a Sycamore View QR code just in case he wanted to give to an organization like ours. So I played it cool, and I sat down, and then I was a little disappointed when I looked over at Penny's table, and Penny Hardaway was eating a veggie plate at Soulfish. Because I don't have anything against vegans or vegetarians, but if you were born and raised in Memphis, I just had a moment where I thought, well, maybe he can't afford meat. Maybe I should... Help Penny out, you know, buy him a piece of fried catfish or a black salmon or something. What does it mean for a Memphian to be a Memphian? And let me, let me ask a better question this morning. What does it mean for a Christian to be a Christian? Because for a Christian to be a Christian, does this mean that you have a conversion story in your life where there was a time and a place and a season where you surrendered your life to Jesus? Or for a Christian to be a Christian, is it about having a belief system where you've processed the Trinity, God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, and 
the work of Jesus on a cross and crucifixion and resurrection? What does it mean for a Christian to be a Christian? And for many people today, especially in our country, for a Christian to be a Christian can be it means that there's an affiliation with a certain political party and which can really hurt evangelism and community throughout the world. I mean, what does it mean for a Christian to be a Christian? And I think if we sat down and really talked about it, we would all get for a Christian to be a Christian, it means a way of life. It's not just a belief system. It's not just something you signed on to. It's not just a conversion moment that has happened in your life, but it becomes a way of life where a Christian being a Christian is one who wants to embody a life of Christ, a life with Christ in everything we do. So it's not just that you are a Christian, but how you live like one and why you are one. It's not just that we're a church that meets in this location and tries to work out what it means to be the body of Christ all around Shelby County and beyond. It's not just that we do that. It's how do we do it and why do we do it? So for the next few months, we're starting a journey this morning through the Gospel of Matthew. And it's just, I've, I've called this sermon series, Why Jesus? And I'm hesitant to ever use sermon titles that have question marks or, or to write uh, pieces that have question marks. You're not supposed to title things that way. But I think this is a really good question for us and one that Christians, no matter how long you have been one, need to be able to process and talk about in your life. Like, why are you following Jesus today? And I think the Gospel of Matthew helps answer that question for us and have that conversation with us. So why Jesus for you? So every fall, we, take, we do a deeper dive into a textual book, a book in the Bible. So uh, over the last few years, we've taken a, uh, in the fall, we've studied Romans chapter 8. We've studied uh, the book of Hebrews, the book of James, Ephesians, Revelation. We did a lengthy series in the Holy Spirit. Last year, we did a lengthy series in 1 Peter. I've preached through Mark, through Luke, through John. And now we're going to walk through Matthew over the next few weeks. And every sermon between now and Thanksgiving, one thing I want to do is we're going to work through a, a story, a narrative in the Gospel of Matthew, and then there are going to be three things I'm going to speak into. There may be weeks I do this at the very end of the message. There may be weeks I do this at the beginning, maybe right in the middle. But three things I'm going to speak into every week is this. What is the truth? What is a grace? And what is a reach? And what I mean by that is every week what I want to do is I want to talk about what is the truth. Like what do we discover about Jesus and whatever the story is that we're reading that day? What is the grace? Meaning what is that connection to God that you have in your life that we have together as a church? What is the connection to God? And then a reach. And a reach is realizing that however we encounter God needs to go beyond just ourselves. So we are reaching into a community or a neighborhood or where you work. So there's a truth about Jesus. There is a grace, some kind of connection to the divine. And then a reach, some kind of challenge that we will embody and live out whatever it is we're talking about that day. So if you don't have your Bibles open yet, open them to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. And here, here's the thing. There are times where people come to me and they're hungry to just understand the Bible or maybe they've never read the Bible and maybe they don't have a relationship with Jesus and they want to start reading the New Testament. Anytime people make a commitment to read through the New Testament, whether they're a new Christian or they're people who've been reading the Bible for a long time, in Matthew chapter 1, I, I find myself almost like warning people. The New Testament begins kind of slow. Because you open up Matthew chapter 1 and you start reading the New Testament and the first thing you read is 17 verses of a genealogy where it's so-and-so is the father of so-and-so and then they're the father of this person. In Matthew chapter 1, it's 42 names. 
It's just, this person was a father of so-and-so, and it just goes on and on, and I have to be honest. Sometimes when I read the Bible and I come across these genealogies, they're kind of boring to me. I read through in First Chronicles 1 through 9, the first nine chapters. It's just genealogy after genealogy. You have this in the book of Numbers, Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 3. And there are times where I may skip through it or just skim it. Because it's just boring. And I know I'm not the only one. You've done this too. Because sometimes genealogies are where year-long Bible reading plans go to die. It's like, oh, I just can't do it anymore. And Because sometimes it just feels like it just keeps going on and on and on. Uh, hey, Dad, uh, think you're making a big mistake on this one. Can I come up there? You want to you wanna come up on the stage right now? Yes. Okay. No, no, I'm in the middle of my message. And you, you really want to... Can you tell me something real quick, man? One, do you think you need to help me with something I'm doing right now? Mm-hmm. Okay. This is uh, Noah James, my youngest son. Can we put it together? Put your hands together for, for Noah. Noah, hey, I get, dude, let me ask, how did you get a microphone this morning? Well, usually every Sunday, the people in the crow's nest hand a microphone to mom because whenever you get things wrong in your sermon, she has to correct you. So you're telling me the crow's nest gives a microphone to mom every Sunday just in case she needs to correct a story I'm telling her. Really? So did Eric Cheney start this? Did your husband start this? So apparently I'm saying something in my message right now that you took a microphone from mom to come up here to correct something I'm saying. Is this right? So I'm talking about genealogies right now. So I, do you not think genealogies are boring? No. Okay. So what is it? What mistake do you think I'm making right now that you need to come up here and correct? Genealogies are very important of the important part of the Bible because Jesus is a part of the story and we are a part of the story and that part of the story is Jesus I mean God's story alright so you're saying one you interrupted my, my message right you're gonna be in trouble about this Noah alright so you interrupted my message because you think genealogies aren't boring they're an important part of the Bible because genealogies remind us that Jesus is a part of a story, we're a part of a story, and all this is part of God's story. Maybe you're right. I'm always right. <laughs> Have a good time with the rest of your sermon. All right, man. Hey, turn the mic off, bro. <laughs> Thanks, Noah. So earlier this year, Noah... Uh, Noah stays up late some nights and he turns on his flashlight or a headlamp and there are nights you're working through Pokemon cards, you're reading other books. And there were a few nights earlier this year you, you were reading the Bible. And there was one night Noah started journaling. And he uh, let, my, let Casey and I read some of the things he was writing about. And here's one, here's a prayer he wrote to God one night. And I have it on the screen. I don't know if you're able to see the whole thing, but, but here's what Noah wrote. Dear O our God, we come to your presence today to give thanks to you for all you've done. The past two weeks, we lost two dearly loved members at our church, Eric Cheney and Jim, and I could tell right here you forgot his last name, but Jim Berryman is who it was. We are glad that they are both in your hands. During the night on Sunday, I started to read out of my Bible, which does not happen often. The first thing I read was Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 through 17. 
And it talked about the family line of Jesus' parents, grandparents, and so on. But when I read, it brought me closer to you. Thank you, Lord. And the church says, Amen. Amen. No, I loved it. Because at that time, I knew that this fall, I was going to be preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. And after you wrote that and prayed that and shared it with us, I knew that I couldn't just skip Matthew chapter 1 and the genealogy because you reframed this to help me to slow down certain parts in certain parts of the Bible to see that this really is, like this is really important to who we are and to how the story of God unfolds for us. So in Matthew chapter 1 verse 1, it starts like this. This is how not just the Gospel of Matthew, this is how the New Testament begins and it begins by saying, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, son of Abraham. And if you look at this next screen right here, just teaching you just a little bit of Greek, because sometimes the way ancient writers, what they would do is the title of the book would have been in the very first line, either the title, the theme, a thesis. And the way this goes in the Greek is biblos genesios. It's Biblos Genesis. It's the book of Genesis. It's, this, this would be our way of saying Genesis part two or second Genesis. This is Genesis the sequel. So the New Testament begin, begins by letting you know, you know, Genesis 1-1, God created the whole world, set it in motion. And now in Matthew 1-1, there's this new thing that's happening again. It's Genesis part two. And in this Genesis, Jesus is the Messiah. And here's how the story of Jesus the Messiah goes. Jesus is the son of David and the son of Abraham. This is Matthew's way of letting you know Jesus is connected to the whole messianic line of David, which means that there is going to, a king that's going to be reigning forever. And Jesus is the son of Abraham, which this was a promise that was given in Genesis chapter 12 when God told Abraham, you are going to be a blessing to the entire world. And the Gospel of Matthew ends that way. The Gospel of Matthew ends with a great commission, which you are to go to all the world. So Jesus isn't just the end of a storyline. Jesus fulfills a story where Jesus is going to be the king who reigns forever. Jesus is the fulfillment, the fulfiller of all promises. And now this is going to keep going. This is the story that we are a part of. And in chapter 1, verse 1 through 17, it's a list of all these names. It's a genealogy that leads up to the birth of Jesus. Now, there are 41 or 42 names that are given. And if you take it seriously and literally, Matthew actually leaves out some names in there. In Genesis, or in Matthew 1, uh, in verse 17, it says this, Thus there were 14 generations, and all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. So Matthew's not, his intent isn't to get all of this historically correct because he leaves out a few kings in there. It's a, it's a theological point he's trying to make about the ongoing story of God where there are three sets of 14. And what Matthew wants you to see is there a, there's a storyline from Abraham to David, from the, the promise of being a blessing to the entire world to the promise of a, a king who will reign forever, and then from David to exile in Babylon, and then exile all the way to the Messiah. And in that genealogy that Matthew gives you of 41 names, there are names in there of people who got it right and names of people who got it wrong, names of people who lived righteous lives, names of people who made a mess out of life. There are men in there and there are a few women who are listed in there. Specifically, the women are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. 
Four women who were caught up in scandals. At least three of them were sexual scandals. At least two of them were non-Jews. It's possible that four of them were non-Jews. This is Matthew's way of telling you that this whole story that's been leading up to Jesus, this isn't clean and easy. Like there are times where God really had to work God's redemptive power to make this thing happen. And probably you don't have to go very far back in your genealogy to see people who really messed it up and now cycles that are still in the process of trying to be broken in your family. And if you look at Matthew chapter 1, 1 through 17, it's a list of all these names in which everything didn't fit together perfectly. And then you would think if God's going to enter into this earth in human form, maybe the best way to do this, especially if God's going to come in the form of a baby, is for it to be in a healthy two-parent home, an established home where two people are ready to have a child. And then you look at verse 18, and it's not as neat as we think it might be. It says, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. And again, it's Genesis there in verse 18. This is the Genesis. This is the beginning. This is Genesis part two. The Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now here's how betrothals or engagements work in in the ancient world. That that engagement was a prenuptial agreement that was bound by law. So when you entered into that covenant, you did it in the presence of other witnesses, and then there would be about a year between when you were engaged to another ceremony that we would consider to be a wedding, when everything, like the the formal stamp was placed on that marriage. But in that in-between time for a year... You functioned, I mean, you may use the, the titles husband and wife. In verse 19, husband and wife is used there. So they entered into a pledge, a formal pledge, with witnesses. They could only be broken by divorce. So it's not like today in our culture where people, they, they become engaged, they're fiancés, and then they can break it off with a text message, or they can break it off any other way they want like we don't have to go before a court to break off an engagement in those days you had to do that it was bound by law if someone died in that year between that second ceremony you would be known as a widow or a widower so Joseph finds out that his fiance Mary she's pregnant now Joseph being a righteous man wants to do right by God Joseph wants to do right by the law And Joseph wants to do right by Mary. So instead of making a big deal about this, Joseph decides to divorce her quietly. So here's what I want you to see this morning in chapter 1. The first 17 verses of chapter 1 is a genealogy that leads up to the birth of Jesus. Where God uses generation after generation. There is this thread of God. And then you have Jesus, who's going to enter into the world, and Matthew's the only one who lets you know much about Joseph. Mark, Luke, John, they don't talk much about Joseph at all. But Matthew does. And what Matthew wants you to see is that Joseph, when he is tagged by God, like it is your turn, and you play a role in this story, Joseph responds with obedience and righteousness He's not just a passive recipient of this story. Joseph becomes an active participant in the story. So when you are tagged by God, 
And God reminds you that there is a plan in which I want you to be a part of this story. How do you respond? Now, I want you to see in verse 20 through 25, and as I read this, and it was read earlier today, I want you to just to be listening and watch for every little moment when you see Joseph, who is a man of character, who is obedient, who is righteous, even when it's hard, even when it doesn't make sense. Here's what it says. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So right there, Joseph is told to take her home even though she's pregnant. Joseph is told what to name the baby. In verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate, so he did not stamp the, the formal, the final, uh, the, the stamp of approval on the marriage where they became one in every kind of way. He didn't consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. And he gave them the name Jesus. So here's three things I want to leave you with today. A truth, a grace, and a reach. And here they are. The truth is this. The truth is this. And, and just a reminder, the truth is what does it say about Jesus? A grace is how does this connect us to the divine? How does this connect us to God? And then a reach is what is the challenge? And here's what I want to leave you with. The truth about Jesus that I want you to remember today is just this. Jesus is the reigning king who is the fulfillment, the fulfiller of all promises. An eternal king who fulfilled the promises that were given to Abraham and promises that we are a part of today. And the grace is this, is that you and we, we're invited to be a part of this story. And then the reach, the challenge for you is what does it mean for you to respond actively and to realize that God is going to give you, God is going to give us multiple times throughout this week, whether it's in our home, in a workplace, in a neighborhood, in a community, for us to live in a way that we are inviting people into this story too. I want to invite you, church, if you'll take the bread and the cup where you are. If you're at home right now and you have the bread and the cup with you, if you'll just hold them. And I want these three truths. I want a truth and a grace and a reach to guide us to our time at the table today. So as we hold the elements, and let's not take them yet, but let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes and let's reflect for a moment. Let this be a time that we both remember and that we recommit ourselves to Christ, realizing that Jesus has given all for us. So let's pray right now. For God, as we honor and remember and celebrate the truth of Jesus, the reigning king, the fulfiller of promises, as we remember and celebrate, even in this moment, how you connect with your people, how you invite us to this table no matter where we are, no matter if we're a first-time guest at Sycamore View or a first time we've been in a church for years or we've been coming into the church for 40 years that we are invited to a table. And God, as we take the bread and the cup this morning and we touch them with our hands and we touch them to our lips, may we remember that you call us to use our hands, our mouth, our lips, our bodies to live out this message and all we do this week. You have invited us into this story.
So as we honor, remember, and celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus today, we are thankful that we get to be a part of this. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Please take, drink, and eat.